Well, now this evening we come to this um, matter of the ancient manuscripts which contain the text of the Bible. You know, we have, for two studies, we have been considering, no, for one study, I think I'm right in saying, or is it two? One study. Uh, we have been considering the text of the Bible and this whole subject of what is called uh, technically, textual criticism. We've already talked about the languages in the Bible. There are three, uh, two principally and another, Hebrew, Aramaic, and uh, Greek. And we have also spoken of the transmission of the text, the way that over the years the text has been copied by hand until finally uh, we have... Uh, the text that, uh, from which we derive our English versions today. Now, this evening, we're not going to go back over what we've said at all, for we've got such a lot ahead of us this evening. I want to confine myself to this whole matter of the ancient manuscripts. Um, those manuscripts which contain... Uh, the original text. Well, first of all, we'll, we'll look at the ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament. The problem of establishing the correct Hebrew text of the Old Testament is not at all an easy problem. For only comparatively late manuscripts survive. We have no full manuscripts earlier than the ninth century after Christ. Now many people do not realize that. Uh, the earliest manuscript of the Old Testament which began to be written some, at least some 4,000, uh, 5,000 years ago, the earliest extant manuscripts we have of the Old Testament are from the ninth century after Christ. We have, of course, some books, books, and we have some fragments which are much earlier, uh, especially since the discovery of what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we shall say something about those in a little while. There is a manuscript of the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, in the British Museum, which is usually dated approximately in the ninth century after Christ AD. One, we have another manuscript of the prophets, former and latter, in Leningrad. Quite a number, by the way, of the manuscripts are in Russia. Uh, one, uh, the most important, uh, concerning the prophets, both former and latter, is in Leningrad, and it is actually dated 916 A.D. We also have one of the whole Old Testament in Leningrad, dated from the early part of the 11th century. We have one at Oxford, the University of Oxford has it, uh, which is older 
than the one at Leningrad of the whole Old Testament, and we have another manuscript of, of the whole Old Testament at Aleppo in Syria. Uh, that's even older. All these belong to the same family uh, of texts. They belong to the same family tracing their lineage back to the same basic text. Now that there were other basic texts is, for the Old Testament is evident from other versions we have. The Septuagint, that's the old Greek version, of the Old Testament and the Syriac version and one or two others. Now here on the board I've drawn a very <coughs> poor chart because I didn't have very much time but it would just help you to understand what I'm getting at. Um, if you've never ever even heard about this subject before. I mean there are quite a few Christians who never even read about uh, the text of the Bible. Now, you see, here we have the original text. We have not got the original text, the actual original text, that is what was written originally, for either the Old Testament or the New Testament. So there we have the original text, which is, as it were, the father of all. And then you see here, we have three basic texts. This was the one that finally came uh, to what we now call the Septuagint, or sometimes written with the Roman uh, numerals, Septuagint, or we have another one which became the basic text for what we call the Syriac version, or the Peshitta, and then we have another basic text which has come down to what we call today the Masoretic of which we shall say quite a lot, upon which our Old Testament, as we now have it in English, and you have it in Swedish, and Danish, and in German, and other languages, has all come from the Masoretic text. So you see, you have one original text, and gradually, somehow, it got divided into three basic texts, which, though substantially the same, vary in detail, and then from those basic texts you have quite a lot of variation. So that before we actually got the uh, version called the Septuagint, which we now know, the official version, there were a number of Septuagint versions which varied one from the other somewhat. And the same with the Syriac version, and it's possible that even with the Masoretic text there was a certain amount of variation. Now if you'll keep that in mind, you'll understand what I'm talking about when I speak about basic texts um, and original texts, and when we speak about families. Um, this is a family, you see? And it traces its lineage back to the same. There's another family and there's another family. That family goes back to one basic text, which in turn traces its origin back to the original text. This is another family that traces its all, they all trace their lineage back to this basic text, which goes back to the original, and the same with that. I hope I have made that um, as simple and plain as I can. All extant 
Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament contain what we call, what is called, the Masoretic text. Uh, this word, Masoretic, I put it down here, I don't know how many of you can see it here, for those of you who are making notes. Um, this word, Masoretic, comes, and, and also it's word, the Masoretes, they were the people who um, edited the text that has come to be called the Masoretic text, comes from the word, the Hebrew word, Masora. Masora. And Masora means tradition. And ma the Masoretes literally means transmitters. They were the transmitters of the traditional text. Now, what all the uh, manuscripts we've talked about, the one in the British Museum, the two in Leningrad, the one at Oxford, the other at Aleppo, and many others, all extant Hebrew texts contain the Masoretic text. The Masoretes, most remarkable men, were Jewish rabbis and scholars who edited the Old Testament from the 6th to the 9th century A.D. They were responsible for introducing vowel signs and punctuation into the Hebrew. You remember last um, uh, week I showed you this uh, Hebrew edition. This um, Hebrew edition of the um, of the uh, uh, of the Old Testament is in fact the Masoretic text and. Uh, as you can see, originally, it didn't have all those dots under it. And nor did it have any punctuation. The Masoretes were responsible for all these little dots that have been put into uh, the Hebrew script in order to show people how to pronounce the words. Because Hebrew became a dead language and people were in danger of forgetting um, how to pronounce these words. So they introduced the vowel signs and punctuation into the text. They were responsible for fixing the text to exactness and observed the strictest rules for copying. Their work was unbelievably, incredibly painstaking. They had to do it all by hand. And they used to count every, when they were copying a book. The rabbi or scribe had to count every single letter. First in the original, then when he had counted the whole number and made sure that it was correct, then he had to find the central letter of the book and make a note of it. Then when he had made his copy, he had to count his whole copy, every single letter, that he'd used, uh, you can imagine for Butler Hazar must have been a job, and then he had to go through it again and find the central letter. If, in fact, the number of letters on the central letter did not tally the original with the copy, the copy with the original, then the copy was destroyed. And that was months of painstaking work destroyed. They did the same with words. Every word was counted for a book, and the central word was discovered. This was the way, their st this, these were the strict rules they had for checking for accuracy, checking against mistakes.
It is even said that when they actually had the whole copy of the Old Testament, they counted all the letters of all the books of the Old Testament. Um, they, they were incredibly painstaking. Their guiding principle was to hand on the text as they had received it. That's why they were called traditionalists, transmitters of the traditional text. Um, it was because of their tremendous reverence for the text that had come to them um, of the Old Testament and the high standard of accuracy that came to be associated with them, that we have no really early Hebrew manuscripts. Because the rabbis disposed of the old worn copies of the Old Testament by reverently burying them in consecrated ground. Uh, they had such a high standard of accuracy and so revered the text that rather than allow it to fall into bad hands or just to rot, they actually buried it in uh, consecrated ground. And often, before it uh, was uh, reverently interred in consecrated ground, it was stored away in a room in the synagogue called the Geniza, which means simply the hiding place, Geniza. And um, these uh, Genezas, where these old books were stored away, were no longer in use, um, have in fact, especially in some parts, have yielded some wonderful finds. Uh, for instance, there is what we often call the Caro Geniza, where uh, some, um, some 30, 40 years ago, I think perhaps not as much as that, um, uh, in the, uh, one of the old synagogues in Old Cairo, in one of these Genezas, in one of these old rooms, they discovered a whole number of manuscripts which had been forgotten, praise the Lord, and had not been interred. And this, in fact, gave us some of our earliest portions of the Old Testament until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. <clears throat> the Masoretic text itself was based on the work of the Talmudists. I've again put this word up here for those who don't know anything about Jewish history or the Jews. The Talmud, of course, is revered amongst Jews to this day. I once wanted to get a copy here for the library, but <clears throat> there are 12 portfolio volumes that make up the Talmud. And uh, the cost was in the region of 60 to 70 pounds, so it was out of question. But the Talmud is the oldest commentary, Jewish commentary, on, if you can call it a commentary, on the Old Testament. And it contains the most ancient observations, stories, expansions, explanations, interpretations of the Old Testament in existence. And um, the Masoretic text traces its ancestry to the Talmudists 
of the second century after Christ and onwards to the sixth century, who in collating and compiling what we now call the Talmud, um, safeguarded the text of the Old Testament. It was this text that the Masoretes um, edited and fixed to absolute exactness. Thus, if you have followed me, we can trace the text um, back through the centuries to within one century or less of our Lord himself. Indeed, we can say with a real degree of certainty that we have in the Masoretic text the actual text that our Lord Jesus himself was acquainted with in all probability. But uh, we must ask ourselves a question. Have we any other means of checking this text, what we call the Masoretic text? Have we got any means of checking it? How do we know that it's authentic? How do we know that in fact uh, this is the text that represents the original? For instance, why could it not be that the Septuagint is more representative of the original. Uh, we have here three basic texts. How do we know that the Masoretic text really represents the original? How can we check it? Well, in the most wonderful way, we have means of checking uh, the Masoretic text. Uh, we have five principal means. The first we call the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritan Pentateuch. This was a version in Hebrew of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And it is unquestionably derived from the most ancient text. Different to the Masoretic text, which must date from at least the 5th century before Christ. The earliest manuscripts extant date from the 10th century and the 13th century after Christ. Nevertheless, they embody um, uh, a text which is much, much earlier. It deviates from the Masoretic text quite a lot. But in substance, it testifies to the essential accuracy of the Masoretic text. And because of its antiquity, it is an invaluable check on the Pentateuch. Now, I'm going to say something a little later about some of the more modern versions, where you will see, if you read your footnotes, references to these um, versions that we're talking about. Now, the second um, means of checking on the Masoretic text is the very exciting discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 and 1948 at a place in Palestine called Qumran. There were discovered there a large number of biblical and rabbinic or Jewish uh, manuscripts. 
And this discovery has greatly influenced the whole study of the text of the Bible, of the Old Testament. These manuscripts are earlier, now listen, than the Masoretic text by between 900 and 1,000 years. And it is remarkable that the Lord has allowed these things to remain undiscovered and allowed all the storm over the authenticity of the text, controversy over the genuineness of the Old Testament and so on, to blow out before, uh, in our lifetime, uh, one of the greatest and major discoveries uh, concerning the text has been made. Now, what does this, um, da did this discovery, what do these manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, as we call them, what do they consist of? Well, they consist of an awful lot of literature. But this evening, we can confine ourselves to just a few points. Firstly, they include a copy of Isaiah com in completeness, a full copy of Isaiah dated by the majority of scholars, nearly all, at least 150 BC. Now that's tremendous because it simply means that all those prophecies which sometimes we were told in earlier days had been interpolated by wicked Christian scribes and so on, was in fact, has been proved false. We now have an actual manuscript copy of Isaiah as we know it, uh, at least a century before the Lord Jesus uh, was born. We also have fragments <coughs> of every other Old Testament book except Esther. Dear old Esther is the only one who's left out entirely. There's no mention of her at all. Some of the books of the Old Testament are referred to or represented in the finds several times. We have a complete copy of Habakkuk and we have another copy of Isaiah, which is very important for checking with the other copy as well as all the others. It's only a third, it's more or less complete from chapter 41 to the end. But all this is tremendously exciting, and even now has not been fully explored and unravelled. They constitute another independent witness to the substantial reliability of the text we have. Of course, I can't spend any more time this evening upon this. I mean, they do deviate, and there are some very interesting deviations uh, from uh, the text we have. But in substance, they confirm the absolute reliability of the Masoretic text, and this is the thing we want to get at this evening. That in itself, I think, is uh, exciting. Of course, it takes our whole, um, it takes our whole, as it were, um, study of the text 900 years earlier, at least. Um, and that in itself is rather wonderful. Now, the third means of checking the Masoretic text is what we call the Septuagint. I have felt it It's the Latin word for 70, as I think some of you from your school days will remember. And often it is written in Roman numerals, and uh, uh, that's the way that you can understand the Septuagint. This is the oldest version of the whole Old Testament, being a translation into Greek 
made at Alexandria uh, in the 3rd century before Christ and probably completed by the end of the 2nd century before Christ. Now again, this is important. It was for the benefit of Greek-speaking Jews who lived all around the Mediterranean and not in, who were not Aramaic-speaking, living in Palestine and Syria. It was supposed to have been made by 72 elders sent down from the Holy Land to Egypt in 72 days in 72 separate cells. Uh, hence it was called the Septuagint. Uh, it, they forgot the two and just called it the Seventy. Um, it is generally considered to be fearful Greek. Uh, one scholar has called it Hebrew in disguise. Uh, its great value lies in its being an independent check on the Masoretic text, for it embodies a basic text other than the Masoretic. It varies in different places, especially in Samuel and Kings, and uh, in Job, and elsewhere it varies, but especially in Samuel and King it varies quite a lot, but essentially it substantiates the Masoretic text. Sometimes the Septuagint corrects our Masoretic text, where copyists have um, gone a little astray, and uh, uh, there's been uh, an, uh, an obscuring of the original meaning and so sometimes in your margin you'll see Hebrew corrupt the Septuagint gives us the key to what was originally there but more often and this we must stress the Masoretic text proves its superiority of course, the Septuagint was the version of the Old Testament used by the early church. They didn't use the Hebrew because most of them didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. So they naturally used the Septuagint. And that's why in your New Testament you'll find that often the quotation of the Old Testament is a little different from what you find in your Old Testament because they're quoting the Septuagint version and not the Hebrew. Um, the best and earliest manuscripts of the Septuagint date from the 4th and 5th century after Christ, some four centuries earlier than, the, the, uh, than our known uh, Masoretic manuscripts. Now we have a fourth means of checking uh, on the Masoretic text. And that is what we call the Syriac. I don't know how many people here have even heard of the Syriac version um, of, uh, of uh, the Bible. But here it is, the Syriac version, and it is called the Peshitta. Um, I had great difficulty discovering how you pronounce that word, but I have found a from an authoritative source that it's Peshitta. Um, this version of the Old Testament was, as you can see, in Syriac. And it was a version, a translation, from Hebrew, made probably in the 2nd or 3rd century AD. It has been revised, unfortunately, uh, a century or two later, in the light of the Septuagint. And so it is not so valuable a check as it would have been 
if it had only been left independent of the Septuagint. Nevertheless, it is another witness added to the others for the reliability of our text. The earliest full manuscripts of the Peshitta date from the 6th or 7th century AD. Now we have a fifth means and last means that I'm going to mention anyway of checking uh, the Masoretic text and that is what we call the Latin Vulgate. By the way, this, as I think I've pointed out to you before, is the uh, Septuagint version. I'll leave it over there afterwards. You can read it. This is the Peshitta. Perhaps some of you have never even set your eyes on the Peshitta. It is, in fact, a very interesting version indeed. It is the version of the old Syriac church, which is still in existence today, all over the Middle East, or at least uh, the... Um, eastern end of the Mediterranean. And um, the third um, means of checking on the Masoretic text is this version we call the Latin Vulgate. This was a translation of the whole Bible into Latin. In fact, the New Testament was more of a revision because there were already old Latin um, copies of the New Testament. It was uh, made by Jeremy, who was the greatest scholar uh, amongst the early church fathers and a man who wouldn't suffer fools. He, when he came to uh, uh, write, as we shall talk about later, his Latin version, he got into a lot of trouble with certain traditionalists who, as always, didn't like their favourite texts tampered with, even if it was more authentic and genuine. And um, I'm afraid he had, we ha there's a letter extant in which he calls them two-legged asses. So he obviously didn't um, put up with fools easily, even if they were Christians. Um, the, he was the greatest scholar amongst the church fathers, and he made this translation uh, about 400 AD. The usual date is 382 AD. Now, why do we mention him particularly? Well, because of this. His New Testament was a revision of existing Latin, in the light of the Greek. But his Old Testament was a translation from Hebrew. And therefore, in the Latin Vulgate, we have got a translation of the text some 500 years earlier than our extant manuscripts. And this in itself, again, is a check. Of course, you've got to... People who, who are Latin scholars have got to think back as to how the Latin would have sounded in Hebrew, you see, so it's not an easy job. But nevertheless, um, it, with the other versions, it proves an added check upon the Masoretic text. Now then, I don't know how bored you are, but uh, in a moment, perhaps this will all start to make sense when we look at one or two um, texts some one or two verses in the Bible. What is generally agreed to by all scholars is that the Masoretic text, now listen to this carefully, upon which our Old Testament is based, is superior to all the others. Now that is generally agreed. There are one or two voices uh, raised against it, but generally speaking it is a unanimous and universal verdict. Um, it is looked upon as not only being superior to the others, but 
as being more reliable, more trustworthy, and more accurate. Let me quote for something that Professor Bruce said in his book Second Thoughts on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Listen to this. But in general, the new discoveries have increased our respect for the Masoretic Hebrew text. In a number of places it calls for emendation, but over the whole area of the Old Testament writings, its superiority to the other forms of text current at the end of the pre-Christian era is assured. The great, indeed all-important question, which Sir Frederick Kenyon asked in 1939, is well on the way to receiving a much more explicit and positive answer than was thought possible then. Does this Hebrew text, which we call Masoretic, and which we have shown to descend from a text drawn up about A.D. 100, faithfully represent the Hebrew text as originally written by the authors of the Old Testament books. Oh, of course, Booth is one of the foremost authorities um, on the text. Sometimes, these versions we have mentioned, the uh, Peshitta, the Syriac, the Septuagint, and the Latin Vulgate, um, help us in determining the meaning of a verse which has become corrupted or seems obscure. Now, how many of you have got the Revised Standard Version with you this evening? You just put your hand up. How many of you have got it? Yes. Well, there's not such a lot of you. Um, for some reason, the Revised Version, the American Standard Version, decided not to use these... Um, uh, abbreviations in their footnotes, at least uh, they use them very, very sparingly, if at all. But the Revised Standard Version um, of the Old Testament decided to use these abbreviations. So now, when you, when you begin to read your Old Testament now, those of you who are using that version, look down at the footnotes, not in the margin, but at the footnotes, and if you see this, G-K, you will know there is a reference to the Septuagint. If you see S-Y-R, you know it's a reference to the Peshitta, or the Syriac version. If you see Sam, you know it's a reference to the Samaritan Pentateuch. If you see V-G, you know it's a reference to the Latin Vulgate. If you see C-M, you will know it means correction. Now, shall we have a look at a few examples? Now we're going to look at a few examples. Now I'd like those of you who, I can't do it all myself, but if those of you with an authorised version, someone with a good clear voice, um, could look up for me this, and someone with a revised standard version, it'll help me very greatly. Now first of all, let's look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. Zechariah Chapter 13, verse 6. Now, I want you to look at the phrase, What are these wounds in thine hands? Alright? What are these wounds in thine hands? Now you will notice 
if you look very carefully, that in the revised version and the American standard version, we have this. What are these wounds between thine arms? Which doesn't make a lot of sense. What are these wounds between thine arms? Now, there is a reference which Monsignor Knox points out, I think very clearly and rather uh, pointedly, uh, in Two Kings, where the Hebrew does say a wound, speaks of a wound, an arrow being shot in some, and it went through him between his arms. But this is not the same here. Anyway, they have amended it to that, between thine arms. Now, the revised standard version, you will see, says, what are these wounds on your back? On your back. Now, can anyone tell me, is it, what does it say in the footnote? It makes no particular reference in the footnote. No. No, all right. Well, now, what, what, do, what are we going to make of this? The authorised version says, what are these wounds in thine hands? The revised version, the American Standard Version says, what are these wounds between your arms? The revised standard version says, what are these wounds on your back? What are we to make of it? Well, now then, listen. We take the Syriac version and we turn it up here. Here we have an independent version of the Masoretic text. Now, what do we read here? And they shall say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? The first. Now we take the Septuagint and we look up Zechariah and uh, when we turn up Zechariah chapter 13 and uh, verse 6 we find this. What are these wounds between your hands? <laughs> between your hands. They have literally translated the Hebrew. Now this is very important because it shows to us that evidently the original Hebrew was something like this between your hands. Was it then so corrupt, you see? Now we take the Latin version and listen to this. This is really quite exciting, at least I find it exciting. Um, this is what, uh, what the Vulgate says. I think this is beautiful. It says... Ask they, what wounds be these in thy clasped hands? See, between thy hands. What wounds are these between thy clasped hands? Now, Knox puts an interesting little uh, um, uh, footnote in here. He says, um, just wait, let me look it up quickly. Um, literally, between thy hands. A difficult phrase, most inadequately interpreted by some moderns as meaning on thy back. <laughs> if the sacred author had meant between thy arms, he would surely have said so, as in 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 24. Now you see, if you look up those versions, it seems clear we have a clear messianic prediction of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems as if we've got it there. Now let's look at another text. Isaiah 53 verse 10. I think we should have to look at these a little more swiftly if we're going to get through this evening. Isaiah 53 verse 10. Now this is that very famous 
uh, reference uh, in that wonderful uh, chapter about the Lord Jesus. This is the phrase, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Now the authorized version, the revised version, and the American Standard Version all give the rendering, when thou shalt, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Although the Revised Version and the American Standard Version give the alternative in the margin. But the Revised Standard Version puts it this way. When he makes himself an offering for sin. Not meaning so much, not so much a prediction of when you and I will take the sacrifice of Christ for our sin. But more a prediction of his offering himself on the cross for our sin. Now what are we to make of this? Well now we look again at the Syriac and the Syriac, the Peshitta, puts it like this. He laid down his life an offering for sin. That uh, agrees with the Revised Standard Version. And then again um, the, um, uh, the Vulgate, Knox's translation of Vulgate, puts it like this. His life laid down for guilt's atoning. So again, you see, you've got some help. Here you've got two, clearly, a variant readings. In fact, it's the most wonderful thing, because both are true. <laughs> he did lay down his life as an offering for sin, and when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his day. Both are absolutely true. But you see, here you've got the versions, it, it can help. Now again, will you turn back to another very interesting um, reference, Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. I'm only giving you, um, in all, I'm only giving you four. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. Now here is a really interesting example of corruption in the text. Now, you will see that the authorised version says, very awkwardly actually, as far as the translation of the Hebrew goes, Cain talked with Abel. <laughs> Cain talked with Abel. Uh, it's the best they could make of it actually, the translators of the 1611 version. The revised version in the American Standard Version put it like, put it like this, Cain told his brother Abel. Um, now, it's very interesting that the Syriac puts it like this. Cain said to Abel, let us go out into the field. Cain said to Abel, let us go out into the field. And the Vulgate agrees word for word. I'm sorry, not the Vulgate, the Septuagint agrees word for word. The Vulgate has this interesting variation Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out together. <laughs> now it is quite plain that um, something fell out of the original text. Why? Because of the next phrase. And it came to pass when they were in the field. Do you see? It's obvious. So the Revised Standard Version has put it in. Now those of you with your Revised Standard Version, you look at the footnote. And you will see how to understand this. It says H. Look at the footnote. H. Samaritan, Greek, Syriac, compare with the Vulgate. Hebrew lacks 
let us go out into the field. Now you've got the idea, have you? Uh, our new versions are, where they feel there's an omission, they are correcting it by these other versions, these very old versions. It is perfectly plain, I think, if you think carefully, that when it said, uh, and Cain talked to his brother Abel, uh, and, where, and it came to pass when they were in the field, there, there's something there, it's, uh, it's much better, it's obvious, let us go into the field. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain slew his brother Abel. Now another interesting um, example, Exodus 17, verse 16. Exodus 17, verse 16. Now here, if you look at the bottom, uh, on your footnote, in your Revised Standard Version, you will see it says Hebrew Obscure. And here you've got this little um, footnote, Correction, C.F. Hebrew Obscure. Now, what is obscure? Well, it is in fact rather obscure. The Authorised Version, the Revised Version, the American Standard Version say, The Lord hath sworn. But you need to see the margin. Well, obviously, even then, they had some doubt about whether it should be translated, The Lord hath sworn. The Hebrew is literally a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And no one has been able to make a lot of sense of it. Uh, I don't know why, but they haven't been able to make a lot of sense of this Hebrew phrase, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. So the Revised Standard Version has decided to correct it, feeling that the Hebrew is corrupt and obscure, and has put a hand upon the banner of the Lord. I don't know whether that really is so good. But um, the Septuagint puts it like this. I'll read it from my notes. The Septuagint puts it like this. I think it's lovely. With a secret hand, the Lord wages war upon Amalek forever and ever. Isn't that lovely? With a secret hand, the Lord wages war upon... Well, that makes sense to me anyway. More than a hand upon the banner. And... <laughs> which is some modern movement. And then the Vulgate, uh, Knox's Vulgate, puts it like this. I'm not sure this is so good. He cried, lift up your hands to the Lord's throne. Well, it is true, because Moses already lifted up his hands, you see. Lift up your hands to the Lord's throne. The Lord declares war against Amalek forever and ever. But now Monsignor Knox adds a very interesting little footnote here. And his footnotes are good. The hand, he says, it is literally in Latin. The hand of the throne of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The hand of the throne of the Lord and the war of the Lord is against Amalek forever and ever. That agrees with the Septuagint. A secret war. Secret hand is at war against Amalek. And now you see, um, these versions can be of help in... Of, determining uh, ob obscurity in some verses. Sometimes these versions can throw more light upon the meaning of a verse. Now a brother spoke to me after last uh, Thursday evening and pointed out to me um, in uh, uh, the Latin Vulgate version of Isaiah 53 verse 4 the word stricken, you know, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In the, um, in the Vulgate, it is put as a leper. So we thought of him, smitten of God and afflicted. Uh, 
And of course I thought to myself when this brother pointed it out to me, well, that's odd. What a, what a strange thing to say. How did that word leper get into there? So the two of us began to search. And we made quite a little search in various um, uh, of these versions. And then we found out this. The Hebrew word for stricken is the, it can mean plague. And is the word used in Hebrew in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 when it's all to do with the plague of leprosy. It's the word used in Leviticus chapter 13. I'll give you one instance of it only out of, oh, an enormous number of instances of its use. Verse 2, when a man shall have in the skin of his flesh a rising or a scab or a bright spot and it become in the skin of his flesh the plague of leprosy. That's the word. The plague of leprosy. So you see, the old Latin version is not so wild as we might think. Uh, when they came to translate this word, they evidently felt uh, justified in translating it as a leper. That was the idea behind it. And you know, I've got a feeling that that, does it, that somehow implies more than stricken. It gives us more of the idea when we know what the biblical meaning of leprosy is. Well, there we are. Now we must go swiftly on, otherwise we'll never end this evening. What about the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament? The problem of establishing the correct New Testament text is comparatively easier than the Old Testament since we have a large number of Greek manuscripts preserving many variant forms of the original text. We have copies of the Greek New Testament written in the 4th century AD, quite substantial parts from the 3rd century, and some, fragment, some fragments from the 2nd. The oldest fragment of one of the Gospels dates from 100, between 100 and 150 AD. In other words, as someone has said before, the ink was almost dry upon the first manuscript. In all, there are manuscripts of all or part of the New Testament numbering more than 4,000. 4,000. Thus it can be seen that there has been a large amount of material through which we can determine the original New Testament text. Nevertheless, there is one sense at least and I hope all those who are anti-Jewish will listen to me very carefully. Nevertheless, there is one sense, at least, in which determining the New Testament text is more difficult than the Old Testament. Some so-called Christian scribes seem to have had no scruples whatsoever about adding, omitting, or changing what seemed to them best. This, the Jewish rabbis and scribes would never even have dreamt of doing. In this sense, our problem, the problem of the New Testament text, is more difficult than the Old Testament. Thus, sometimes, because of heresies, rapidly growing, or for some other reasons, uh, sometimes it was the person in the heresy, sometimes it was the orthodox who was horrified by the heresy, or for some other reason, 
verses were made clearer or they were made more emphatic than in fact they were or they were omitted because they didn't quite um, back up the contention of the scribe or his party or they were added in order to insert some authority for some particular thing. Now it is a good thing and a wonderful thing, it's marvellous thing in the hand of God, that we have so many manuscripts extant by which we can judge what was the original New Testament text. Now I'm going to give you an example. Uh, authorised version, someone. 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Now, could you see um, last part of verse 6? It is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. How many of you have not got that in your text? Well, a lot of you are using the authorised version, and that's all I can say. Um, uh, the authorised version includes that in its text. But when you look, if you're using the revised version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New English Bible, or the Syriac, Every one of those omits entirely, both in the text and the footnotes, this verse. Do you know the first time that verse ever appeared? As far as at present we know. It, it, the first time it appears in the writing of a Latin writer called Priscillian in 385 AD, and thereafter we discover it in some old Latin uh, manuscript. It is in not one single one of our earliest and best Greek manuscripts. And it is generally thought to have been inserted at the time when the heresy was growing rapidly, which denied the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we had this insertion, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. But is that so? Now, Monsignor Knox, again, um, has a very interesting footnote on this. For the Latin Vulgate doesn't include it either. It's unknown to all the early versions, uh, as well as the manuscripts. Um, but Monsignor, Monsignor Knox puts this in a footnote. He says the Latin manuscripts may have preserved the true text. Well... There you are. But that's why in all your revised versions, all the modern versions, that verse does not appear. It is not considered to even have a claim to go into the footnote. So it's expunged altogether uh, from the record. Um, now in the light of this, it needs to be emphasized that we have more evidence for the original text of the New Testament than any other work which has come down to us from the ancient world. Now I'm going to quote, first of all, I'm going to quote Bishop Westcott in the book that he wrote 
called Some Lessons from the Revised Version. The popular interest felt in a few well-known variations, particularly in the omission of some familiar passages, has no doubt produced an exaggerated impression of the importance of the textual changes. It cannot therefore be repeated too often that the text of the New Testament surpasses all other Greek texts in, uh, in the antiquity, variety and fullness of the evidence by which it is attested. About seven-eighths of the words used are raised above all doubt by a unique combination of authorities. And of the questions which affect the remaining one-eighth, a great part are simply questions of order and form, and such that serious doubt does not appear to touch more than one-sixtieth part of the whole text of the New Testament. I think that's tremendous. Then I'm going to uh, read to you something from the preface of the Revised Standard Version uh, of 1946. We now possess many more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament and are far better equipped to seek to recover the original wording of the Greek text. The evidence for the text of the books of the New Testament is better than for any other ancient book, both in the number of extant manuscripts and in the nearness of the date of some of these manuscripts to the date when the book was originally written. That's tremendous. Now, the most important manuscripts we have for the New Testament, come from the, between the 4th and the 6th century AD. And amongst these are the three I have put on the board here for their such terrible mouthfuls. The Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, and the Codex Alexandrinus. These three are amongst the most important of the manuscripts we have. The Codex Sinaiticus, Sinaiticus, dates from the 4th century, and it is of the whole Bible, and it is now in the British Museum. Parts of the Old Testament are missing. The Codex Vaticanus dates roughly from the same time, approximately, as the Codex Sinaiticus. It's missing Hebrews, uh, 9, verse 14 to the end, the pastoral letters, Philemon and Revelation. And that resides in the Vatican Library, as you can imagine from its name. The Codex Alexandrinus dates from the 5th century, and it is also in the British Museum. Now, scholars today tend to divide all this material I have mentioned, 4,000 extant manuscripts, into five basic families. Now, you see, in the Old Testament, there were three basic families, but in the New, Te in the New Testament, there are five basic families, roughly five basic families. And these basic families, which each one representing the original text, um, are not independent. Of one another. They in fact um, do rely on when they've borrowed a certain amount from one another. Now I've put down here the, um, the, uh, 
the five names into which they are divided, the Byzantine, the Alexandrian, the Western, the Caesarean, and the Antiochian. That's a terrible mouthful. Um, these five families, the Byzantine is known often as the received text, and it underlies the authorized version. It's based on the Codex Alexandrinus and it kind of dates roughly from the 4th century. The Alexandrian, now listen carefully, the Alexandrianist, or sometimes called the neutral text, is thought often to be nearest to the original text, and it underlies the revised version and the American standard version. That's why there is a difference between the authorised version and uh, the revision. The Western, uh, that dates from the 2nd century, AD, the Western text, this is the text of the old Latin versions, and more recently scholars have felt that this is nearer to the original than was first thought. It is not later than 150 AD. The Caesarean, that's the one that it is not easy to determine. It would seem that it's many think that it is a correction of the Western by, by in the light of the Alexandrian. The Antiochian is the basis of the old Syriac version, uh, and again, it cannot be later than 150 AD. Now, are there any other ways of checking on the original text of the New Testament? Well, there are two main ways. The first, again, is the early versions of the New Testament, and the most important of these are the Latin, the Syriac, and the Coptic. Uh, dating from the 2nd and 3rd century AD. And the other means of checking on the original text of the New Testament is from quotations of the New Testament in early writers, principally Greek, Syriac, and Latin, from the 2nd to the 4th century AD. Now, perhaps this will be a little more lively and interesting. Our latest versions, especially the revised standard version and the new English Bible and so on are based on all these each variant reading being considered uh, on its merits and no one particular family of these five being favoured now you see the authorised version favours very definitely the Byzantine the revised version in the American Standard Version, the Alexandrian. But the revised Standard Version takes them all in. And so does the New English Bible. Um, thus, uh, we can say um, a little more, I think, perhaps, about the English authorised version of 1611, this was based on the received text, as I had said, which was derived by Erasmus from a few late manuscripts and published at Basel in 1516. The most important manuscripts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus and others, had not even been discovered at that time. So it was only natural he published his Greek text, his edition of the Greek uh, New Testament, uh, in the light of what was known which was the Alexandrinus, uh, and uh, it was based on the Byzantine text. Now, 
This edition of the Greek text was substantially the Byzantine text, and it included a comparatively small number of verses or phrases and one passage not represented in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Thus, the Revised Version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, and the New English Bible omit these altogether or relegate them to footnotes. Now that explains why some well-known passages, at least those that you know well, have been put into the footnotes. They have put them, they've relegated to them footnotes rather than omitting them altogether if there is some possibility of their representing the true original text. Now I'm going, well, let's look at one or two. We've already looked at 1 John 5 verse 7 and I just Give that again as an example of a verse omitted altogether by all modern versions as not being, uh, not representing the original text. Now, here's the bigger shock I suppose most of us would receive. John chapter 7, verse 53 to verse 11 of chapter 8. Now, this is the story of the woman taken in, in adultery. The Revised Version and the American Standard Version keep it in the text in brackets, but have the footnote, most of the old manuscripts omit this passage. Those which contain it vary from each other. The Revised Standard Version places the whole passage in footnotes, rather awkwardly, actually. The New English Bible places it on its own, at the end of the Gospel of John, and gives it its own little title, entitled, An Incident in the Temple. It's completely removed it. And it has this footnote. This passage, which in the most widely received editions of the New Testament is printed in the text of John 7, 53, has no fixed place in our ancient witnesses. They use the word witnesses for ancient versions and manuscripts. Some of them do not contain it at all. Some place it after Luke 21, verse 38. Others after John 7, verse 36. Or John 7, verse 52. Or John 21, verse 24. So you had that choice. <coughs> I must say that inwardly, whatever they all feel, I have a strong intuitive feeling that uh, that passage represents something absolutely authentic. It is very interesting that J.N. Darby points out in the one manuscript the two pages have been torn out as if someone didn't like it. Uh, it sort of seemed to speak of the Lord condoning immorality. But whether this is so or not, we don't know. But certainly it's authentic. And uh, it is interesting that in all the versions they have not omitted it altogether. They have placed it elsewhere because they are not at all certain, with a, a lot of justification, that it belongs to that particular position in John after the 52nd verse of chapter 7. Now look at John chapter 5, verse 3 and verse 4. Now again... You know this is about the moving of the water. And it says that an angel used to go down at certain times. And then whoever got in first after that was healed. Now in your revised version, your American Standard Version, your revised Standard Version and your New English Bible, it has been placed in the footnotes. In other words, they, they feel that they can't omit it altogether. It may well 
represent the original, but all the earliest manuscripts do not include it in its authorised version place. Then again, a portion I'm very fond of, Acts chapter 8, verse 37. I never forget when I first found that relegated to the footnotes, I nearly wept. Um, the revised version, the American Standard Version, the revised Standard Version, the New English Bible, all place this in the footnotes. You know where, where um, uh, Philip, uh, speaking to the eunuch, and Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's beautiful. Uh, well, it's not in the earliest, but it is a very interesting, it's a very interesting addition, because it undoubtedly, and this is a point that has interested many scholars, it undoubtedly embodies the very simple question asked before people were baptised, and the answer that was given before they were publicly baptised. Sometimes, I've only given you four um, points there, um, to think about. There are, of course, a number of others. Sometimes the various versions will help us to understand what is meant. Now, I'm going to give you just one little instance of this, which has been a blessing to me. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6, the authorised version puts this. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and so on. The Revised Version, the American Standard Version, and the New English Bible put it like this. I'm rather sad about it. They are come to pass. I don't see what, that, what sense that makes. I know when I first read it in my Standard Version, which I use more than any other, I know, well, what does that mean? They have come to pass. They haven't come to pass. What does it mean? They are come to pass. The New English Bible puts it, they are already fulfilled. Well, does it mean that everything in this book is already fulfilled or already fulfilled in the mind of God? What does it mean? Now, I'm very interested that the Revised Standard Version has gone back to the Authorised Version rendering and has put, it is done. Well done, I say. <laughs> it is done. And I'm even more interested to read this, which I think is the most beautiful rendering of all. In the Vulgate, and I'm absolutely, I've got a feeling it... It's got the whole idea and puts it in a nutshell. The Vulgate puts it like this, and he said to me, it is over. Well, I love that. He said to me, it is over. I am Alpha, I am a... That, to me, is what it really means. It's done. It's over. In other words, when, the Lord, when he came to this final vision, the Lord Jesus was saying, it's all over. Whole things passed away, no more crying, no more death, no more mourning, no more suffering. It's all right, it's over. Not it's there fulfilled. It's over. That gets the idea of it. It's finished with I am I am Alpha, I am Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Well, I think that's just lovely. Um, and then again there's another little interesting um a point in John chapter 9. Now again, the brother pointed this out to me after the study last uh, uh, Thursday, and I, I think it's worth mentioning. 
chapter 9 of John, verse 3 and 4. Jesus answered, this is the American Standard Version, Jesus answered, neither did this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Full stop. We must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Now, here's a question of punctuation. The, the authorised version, the revised version, the American Standard Version, the New English Bible follow the same punctuation. Dr. Campbell Morgan, in one of his works, has said, has queried this. And he said, you know, I cannot help but feel that somehow or other there's something wrong with this verse. Surely it doesn't teach that a man could be paralysed from birth just in order that God's work should be manifest in him. Well, of course, you know, he was an Arminian. He wasn't a Calvinist by anything. And he was very, very upset indeed by the whole thing. And he wrote to an eminent um, Greek scholar and asked, is there any reason why the punctuation should be like this? Why can't we remove the full stop after in him and read it like this? Neither did this man sin nor his parents, full stop, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, we must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. And the scholar wrote back and said, there is no reason at all why you should not do that. None of the versions do, but listen to this. Uh, Campbell Morgan didn't know about this. <laughs> no, he didn't. I'm afraid I've stumbled on it. This is the Peshitta. And this is what this says. I think it's beautiful. Jesus said to them, comma, neither did he sin nor his parents. Full stop. But that the works of God might be seen in him, comma, I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Well, isn't that interesting? Now, does that in fact embody the true meaning of that verse. Then again, there's another very interesting little query about punctuation in Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. This is a very important one, actually. We read, Whose are the fathers? And of whom is Christ as concerning the flesh? Comma, who is over all God blessed forever? A wonderful declaration of the divinity and deity of the Lord Jesus. Who is God over all? Blessed forever. Now, our revised standard version, our authorized version, revised version of the American standard version, give that punctuation. But our revised standard version, the New English Bible, uh, give another. This is what they say for Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race according to the flesh, comma, is the Christ. Full stop. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. Doesn't mean the same. But now, when you take the Vulgate, and you take the Syriac version, you find a most emphatic rendering of this, in favour of the former. Listen, it puts... The patriarchs belong to them, and theirs is the human stock from which Christ came. Christ, comma, who rules as God over all things, blessed forever. Amen. Well, that couldn't be more different. And then the Syriac version puts it like this. Again, representing as they do old texts. 
um, it's uh, worthy of note. Put that is. It it is not as though I'm sorry. And the fathers from among whom Christ appeared in the flesh, who is God over all, to whom are due praises and thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. So you see, there is some help that we can get from these various versions. Now we come to the conclusion. Just a few moments and I will summarise the whole of this study and last Thursday's study. When one remembers the 4,400 years of copying by hand, the complexity of many of the records, the amount of material involved, the generally unscientific way to us now in the 20th century in which these things were approached and handled, the human factors of failure and weakness and inefficiency, the ravages of time and war, the perishable nature of the materials used in writing, the desire of heresies to conform the text to their own convictions, and sometimes the equally great desire of orthodoxy to rule out any embarrassing scriptures they came across. It is a miracle of no small degree that we have so few real points of variation in the text. In fact, it is singularly remarkable, considering all the evidence we have, that we hold today in our hands a text both of the Old Testament and of the New Testament which is substantially and essentially what was originally written and to whose accuracy all the latest discoveries testify. And when we bring all the points of doubt we have in the text due to any mistake in copying or human failing and place them together, we discover that no major or minor theme of the Bible is impaired or injured at all. And not one single doctrine of the whole of Scripture is affected, not even by the accumulation of all the so-called mistakes. All this cannot be explained other than by the sovereign oversight of God in a most amazing way. We have in this volume a miracle, in my estimation, as great indeed, if not greater, than the very construction of the heavens, or of the design in life itself. Certainly, it is a miracle more wonderful than any healing from disease that flabbergasts and amazes people so much, or even of raising someone from the dead. The presence of 
this book today is an indication of the presence of God in history and human affairs. I do not think for a moment that you and I put the value upon this book that we ought to. You know, if someone was raised from the dead in our company, we would talk about it for years. If someone was healed as well they could be and ought to be, we would talk about it again and again and again. And yet, in this volume, we have a miracle in my estimation greater than all that. And oh, so, so remarkably evidenced in the way in which it has been finally brought to us. Indeed, as I said last week, in our study of the text of the Bible, in these two evenings, we have enough evidence to try our faith and we have enough evidence to bring us to our knees in wondering trust. I don't think we can do any better than close um, this particular, the study on this particular subject uh, than by quoting from Sir, a book by Sir Frederick Kenyon who was one of the greatest authorities of the last century, he died just a few years ago, um, one of the greatest authorities uh, on textual criticism. This is what he closed his little book called The Story of the Bible. It may be disturbing to some to part with the conception of a Bible handed down through the ages without alteration and in unchallenged authority. But it is a higher ideal to face the facts, to apply the best powers with which God has endowed us to the solution of the problems which they present to us. And it is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity the veritable word of God.